0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, All rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should
1: be above the law.
0: A lot of us talk about that, but you actually do it. That's how you also
2: maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer.
1: Welcome to the award winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Ken Levinson from Chicago. Ken, how you doing today? I'm doing
2: great. Thank you, Michael, for
0: having me here. You've got an interesting practice. Uh, You're the only person I know that both has their own active trial practice and is good at it, and also has an active trial consultant focus group practice. Uh, what kind of brought you into because I've met a lot of people that just do focus groups and are good at that. I've met a lot of people that just do trials and bring in other people to do the focus groups. What kind of got you to into having that split practice?
2: Well that's a great question. I did a focus group many years ago with a trial consultant and a lawyer and Love the process and learning how people think about cases and how they decide and decision making. And then a lawyer in town uh, in Chicago said, well, you know, you did this focus group, do you want to help me with one? And then one thing led to another and all of a sudden I'm doing, at this point now, 50 or so focus groups a year. Uh, But I love helping my clients and I love cases. I love the strategy and going to trial. Um, so I never want to give up our, our main part of our practice, trying cases and, and helping people, especially in the uh, truck crash cases. But on the other hand, I never want to give up my focus group work because I learn so much. And it's selfish and self-serving, but I'm constantly learning and enjoy the process of, of focus groups.
0: That's awesome. What did you then do to, I want to kind of hit both ends. So. Uh, Just on the focus group side, what did you learn to do those better? What did you, how did you figure it out?
2: Well, it took me a while, uh, a lot of trial and error and learning, uh, even little things that now seem so clear and obvious to me and, and great lawyers like yourself, Michael. Uh, not trying to argue with people, uh, accept the gift they give you. And in one instance, uh, a woman talked about the fact that, you know. The plaintiff in this case shouldn't have been in her car, stopped at a red light when the bus rear-ended or hurt her. You know, she shouldn't have been on the road. And my initial reaction, when maybe when I was a young lawyer doing focus groups, I'd want to say, are you crazy? That's insane. <laughs> and I want to argue and persuade her. And over time, I've learned the better approach is to accept what people tell you, listen, and in a neutral way, find out what's going on and and the phrase tell me more yeah is so effective and what generally happens is like a real trial the other participants in the focus group or the other jurors will save you and by pausing and getting everyone involved the other folks said well wait a minute you know she's got a right to be in a car especially when it stopped a light in her own vehicle um as opposed to arguing, finding more, and discovering, and not trying to persuade, but trying to be a good listener and learn. I will tell you that that's
0: been most of the most difficult and probably the most game-changing thing I've done in my practice. And, and uh, I always have to say, Joe Freed and Michael Luserman, uh have done a great job of like, holding my hand, talking to me on the phone like, you can do this, is trusting the group trusting the jurors because when you have that you're arguing it's us against you i don't trust you they sense it whereas if you trust them to
2: save you they will it's an, it's amazing right and michael uh, leiserman who is one of the best lawyers in the country um i think he would say it's also about the dynamic of what's going on don't look at the micro uh, the narrow you're going to win this point with this one perspective juror Because what are you sending in terms of a message to everybody else? Listen, I'm this lawyer who wants the truth, and I'm honest and candid. Uh, Of course, if if you say something I don't agree with, then I'm going to attack you and argue. Because it sends a message to everybody in the room that you're not really looking for honesty, and you're not a truth seeker, which I think we all want to be in the courtroom, the most credible person in the courtroom. What you really are is... uh, you want people to agree with you, and if they don't, you're going to attack them. And Absolutely. that does so much damage to your credibility and everyone in the room.
0: He's a, he's a football coach, not a lawyer person, but Jimbo Fisher, who I know any of our Florida State listeners probably aren't real happy, but us Texas Aggies are happy to have him. Uh, he has a saying, your actions are speaking so loud I can't hear the words you're saying. Brilliant. And, you know, uh, same thing, when, you know, when we are acting one way, you know, we say, oh, I want to listen to you, I respect you, and then we jump on people that disagree with us, you know, we're
2: showing that we're not really there to be trusted. That's right. And with focus groups, what I get to do, uh, and I'm so fortunate, I get up to talk to people about cases and listen and really learn how they think and it trains me, and I, over time now, I've really gotten much, much better at just listening, accepting, and finding out why they think uh, the way they do, and getting a discussion going, and sort of fading in the background, and just learning, observing, and learning. And that, to me, is the key to a focus group, as opposed to trying to force your theory and your case down people's throats uh, that might not be receptive to it.
0: Now, you know, the focus group is a lot of more being in the background, listening, accepting, but when you're in trial, you need to be, through a lot of the trial, leading and persuading as opposed to just listening. And you've, your results speak for themselves. I mean, you've got a $43 million verdict. You had a recent six and a half, I'm sorry, six and a quarter million dollar settlement on one of your drug cases. Lots of other wonderful results, uh, both in the courtroom and in settlement, which mean they were scared of your courtroom abilities or wouldn't, they wouldn't pay you that money. What are the things that you've learned then, uh, how, you know, how did you learn to get those skills? Because it's one thing to learn to talk to people and I'm talking, but then how do you, you know, how did you learn to persuade them and lead them?
2: Well, I, I think the Focus who work certainly helps because we find out what resonates with folks and we test things and anywhere from using uh, video deposition clips to find out if a witness seems credible. Um, sometimes we fall in love with our cases. We fall in love with an expert, maybe a witness, uh, expert witness that we hire that we think, God, this guy wrote the book on this topic. He's the best in the country. He went to an Ivy League school and the jury's gonna love him. And sure enough, you show a clip uh, 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 to a focus group participant panel and they say, well, he seemed aloof and cocky and arrogant. I like the other expert who (laughs) frankly, we would think, is less qualified. but So it's not about what we think. It's about the jury, and it's about um, uh, testing and fi- figuring out, look, I don't want to fall in love with my case or a witness or a theory without really stepping back and almost looking at your case in a different way. And it's hard to do because you're in the middle of you know, all these depositions, and you might be in the middle of a case for years and you fall in love with a theory or a fact and it's hard to do it, but you really need to have that Zen mind, beginner's mind that Michael Leeserman talks about and trains lawyers on. Step back with a fresh slate and then really reevaluate the case and and figure out what's going to persuade people, what's the most um, uh, important fact in the case because what we think as lawyers, the issue spotting and things we learned in law school and proximate cause and the legal standard and all the legal ease is not necessarily what's going to persuade and be the best story for your case for a jury, for real folks who didn't go to law school. So what
0: is it, you know, so you've done, you know, you said focus groups a year. You're talking to a lot of people. What is it there you think that's translated into being able to talk to jurors at the courtroom?
2: Because well,
0: it's a different environment and it's kind of a different purpose, but what is it you get out of that experience of just talking to all these people that, lets, that I think helps you when you're in the courtroom?
2: Right. Well, I think we get lost in the language of being a lawyer. When you and I talk, we're here at a trial lawyers conference and we're with hundreds of fellow trial lawyers and we're talking a language that we understand. There's a code we, we all have and there's a way we talk about our cases and we have shortcuts and little abbreviated terms. By talking to people in a focus group and over you know, thousands of people about our cases, I really try to train myself to talk like real folks and real people talk in 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 everyday life about our cases and it's not only the legal standard or uh, the case law that we learned and it's a wonderful way to translate in, into a courtroom because the jury it's, it might be the first time they've dealt with a lawsuit or a lawyer or certainly being in that courtroom setting which is scary for them uh, just as a general rule let alone different language, and a man or woman up higher than them in a black robe looking down at them, ordering to do things. And uh, the ability to talk in a real language using uh, terms that people understand that you can relate to uh, is a transferable uh, skill set, if you will, that works perfectly in both settings.
0: Yeah, what I found has helped me is the transformation between... Being Michael Cowan trying to be a lawyer, or being Michael Cowan trying to imitate Jerry Spence another lawyer, and just being Michael Cowan. Uh, and I think you probably have a lot of practice at, at being, I don't want to say just Ken Levinson, but being Ken Levinson and being yourself and the power that, that authenticity brings to uh, human
2: communication. That's right. It's about being ourselves, and Jerry Spence trains lawyers about this and, and you you trained you taught lawyers at Jerry Spence's college or how college on this
0: well Jerry Spence teaches lawyers to do that but then a lot of them and, you know and I've done it myself end up trying to imitate Jerry Spence rather than fully and it takes think, years you learn things at the college and it takes years because you know, Spence is something special and has had decades on us uh, to learn that you're not just imitating someone else you are being yourself sorry to interrupt but let's go back to. I'll let you get back to no, I,
2: that's, that's exactly right. In fact, one of the questions I'm asked most by lawyers is, you're working with some of the elite trial lawyers in the country who are getting you know, eight-figure verdicts consistently and really doing well in front of juries. You know, What makes them great? How do I do that? And one of the biggest lessons I'm relearning constantly is it's not about style and being someone else. In fact, my example is there's some lawyers in Chicago, uh, partners at the same firm, and we did back-to-back focus groups on significant cases for them. Their styles couldn't be more different. One lawyer talked like he might have, you know, had a high school education and was a iron worker and a regular guy. You can see him just talking in the cafeteria with regular people. No fancy language, just gruff and short sentences and. His law partner, smooth as silk and movie star handsome and tall and speaks eloquently and just completely opposite styles. But the reality is it works for them uh, because they're honest with themselves and they're not trying to be someone they're not. Because I think a jury senses that. I mean, you sense when you meet someone at a wedding or um, at at a bar association function, when someone's trying to be someone they're not. Most of the time, after a short period of time, you sense it, you pick it up. And I think the same is true with a jury. They pick up that you're trying to be someone you're not. And I've learned through a lot of different ways of practicing law, the most effective lawyer for me is to be myself.
0: I think that's what I even like the way you dress. I mean, someone asked me, I actually was a guest on a podcast, which is kind of weird for me being on the other side of it today. And someone asked, you know what, my, you know, one of my relatives said that when he tries cases, he wears like his shabbiest suit, you know, or jacket that he has and threadbare stuff. And I'm like, you know, that's not how you normally dress, you know, and, and, you know, the way I think of it is like, you go to a wedding and you'll see like the uncle or the cousin that never wears a tie and he could just see, he's had the same, you know, he found like an old suit or something that he had 20 years ago and he's uncomfortable and it, you know, it doesn't work for him because it's not him. I think the same thing. If, if you normally are you know, dressed to the nines and you're sharp and you put on shabby clothes, you're, you're, it's going to show through. You need to be who you are and the way you dress, the way you speak. And when you try to be something else, then people smell funny.
2: Yeah, I agree. Especially now with social media, right? They're going to uh, uh, find who you are. They're going to Google you. And In Chicago, uh, there's an uh, instruction. Judges will tell jurors you know, no outside research. Please don't use the internet about cases and don't research the lawyers. And I think we all know the first thing they do when they get to a computer or a break on their phone is Google the lawyers and Google whatever they can about the case. And if your website, and that's probably another topic for a a podcast and you've, I'm sure, hit on this. If your website is something you wouldn't want a jury to see, and it's Talking about how you've gotten millions of dollars for clients that weren't deserving, and you are, and it's out there, and you're dressed slick, and it's almost like a used car salesman, and you try to come to court with that shabby suit you alluded to, and you're being the regular guy, which isn't really you. I think a jury's going to sense that in a lot of ways, and maybe even see it on the internet.
0: Yeah, you might be better off wearing your suit. I mean, <laughs> That's honestly, right. your nice suit
2: than doing that.
0: That's right. Whereas, you know, I never wear a suit to the office. Now, I do have one on my website. But uh, you know, I am more comfortable wearing slacks and uh, a regular
2: jacket. I mean, that makes so that's what I do. And I've seen you speak at uh, truck crash trial seminars, and you normally wear a sport coat and some slacks, and you look comfortable, and you are comfortable in front of a large group of lawyers, right? Teaching like you normally do.
0: Yeah, so that's what I that's because that's me. Now, the office I wear jeans, and you know, but that's judges don't like you wearing jeans to court. I, I bet.
2: Well, I think a jury even expects you to wear a certain level of... <laughs> yeah.
0: I think it would be disrespectful on a serious case to show up wearing blue jeans. Uh, although my old boss at Stapleton got an $8 million verdict wearing blue jeans once, so he had a judge to let him get away with it. So you never, you never know, but he was a special talent, too. So. That's true. Uh, I, I, I at least wear khakis.
1: Would you like to meet host Michael Cowan in person? If so, here's your chance. Trial Lawyer Nation is excited to invite our podcast listeners to Michael Cowan's Trucking CLE on Thursday, October 10th in San Antonio, Texas. Join us for a full day of trucking education hosted by Cowan Rodriguez Peacock. The seminar will take place at a location in downtown San Antonio right on the historic Riverwalk. We will begin at 9 o'clock AM and end at 4.30 PM. The 6.75 hours of CLE will also include one hour of ethics. This is a complimentary CLE with no fee to attend. However, seating is limited to 65 plaintiff attorneys. We've received an overwhelming response to this event already and do anticipate it will reach capacity before October. So if you are interested in reserving a spot, please send us an email to podcast at com. And now back to the show.
0: So one thing you said, you know, you've seen the; you've had a chance to work with these great lawyers Part of it you've seen is that uh, you know they're comfortable in their own skin. they are who they are they don't pretend to be something else. What are the other things you've noticed about you know what what differentiates the elite lawyers, the people you see that are just knocking them out of the park case after case you know from the rest of the mortals that are good
2: lawyers, but just you know the the difference between the elite and the good two things I've noticed one is they know their case. They work their cases up well, they know their cases, they know what the witnesses have said, they have very familiar with the depositions, the underlying facts, they're not winging it, they might seem like they're casually talking about the case, but they know and they work really hard. The second thing I've noticed is, the better trial lawyers I've gotten to work with and gotten to know are always learning. They're looking to improve. Um, some of these lawyers, we try, uh, we help with focus groups, know, we might do 20 focus groups a year for certain firms. They've been getting multi-million dollar verdicts for decades, but they're always learning and testing and revising and reading and thinking about, you know, how do I improve? And sometimes I, it, it's almost I get a chuckle out of it because the lawyer will say, Ken, we need your help on this case, and we and I'm thinking. You know you've done okay for 30 <laughs> you know 35 years without my help um and they're not doing the same old thing all the time they test what works and they're open to suggestions and modifications even though they might try something and have an effective trial a big verdict and if we test it and figure out you know what we can make it better they're all in as opposed to the lawyers who said, i know this stuff you know, I know him in a different scenario when we do a focus group for the lawyer and halfway through the, he says or she says, yeah, I knew all that already and this is the way I do it. And uh, and then when they get feedback the other way from a focus group, uh, well, they're not going to be like, my jury, these people are stupid or they're <laughs> wrong and I'm going to convince the real jury. And, you know, they never look upon themselves to improve or get better or change or revise. And those are lawyers that Um, worry me in terms of going to trial and truly helping their clients.
0: Yeah. And there is always so much more to learn. There's always another level uh, to get up to. There's never, I don't think there's anyone that just has total mastery and they couldn't improve at all.
2: Well, I knew a lawyer who did uh, about 25 years ago. I knew everything, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I knew how to give the best closing and do everything perfectly, and now I feel like god there 's so much more to learn and This is after you know you know twenty some years of practicing and reading and learning and focus group work and trying cases, but there 's so much more to learn and revising it better, and frankly that 's what makes this practice enjoyable and the the learning aspect and getting better and improving and talking to great lawyers like you and Joe Fried and michael Lieserman and know my my mentor and hero rex paris and learning what they do and how they revise things and you know rex paris has done certain things for years with metaphors and cognitive science and he told me recently some of the things he's revising because he's adjusted it and learned better and thought things through a little bit more and tweaked things and that's what makes what we do so enjoyable and and fulfilling
0: plus when you People change. I mean, there, there's some basic human things that don't, but juror attitudes change in things that work. Like, I had a system for trying car wreck cases, back when I was trying the regular non-commercial car wreck cases, that worked pretty well. And I'd kind of gotten, back then I had a huge volume, and so you know, I was trying a lot of cases, but you didn't have a lot of time to necessarily prepare and know your case. I'm ashamed to say that, but it's the truth. Uh, and But I had like a technique that worked and then about 2003, 2004, it stopped working. Uh, you know, there's some societal attitudes to change, the jury pool composition to change some, and what had worked before didn't work anymore, and then I either could keep hitting my head against the wall or I had to go learn new things.
2: That's right, that's right. And how people learn, right, that, you know, especially with social media and t- Twitter and shorter t- uh, text messages and the way we process information, that we information is given to us in school and otherwise uh, you can't stay static and do the same things over and over and expect uh, to get better. Yeah so what are some of the things you're doing with
0: I mean we've talked about you talked to lots and lots of focus groups but other than that what are some of the things you're doing to get better?
2: Well I read uh, a lot on decision making psychology metaphors um, uh, psychology and and I try to keep up to date with the later studies and how people make decisions um so i try my best to read a book a week and i'm very lucky i get to take a train from my house to downtown chicago and i'm on a lot of planes so i get to read a lot uh and i take what we learn and i share it with my friends and we analyze it and then we test it in focus groups and we use it in cases and depositions and case preparation and we go to a lot of seminars and we have in-house training and uh, I've been very lucky to have wonderful friends who do what we do and have the same philosophy about getting better and learning. And It's like we talked about before. It's an ever-evolving process and I love learning new things, testing them, in, even in a deposition. We have different types of depositions in Chicago and in Illinois and we have a, what they call discovery depositions. So, there's no real downside. Most of the time those aren't going to be read to a jury and you can test things and ask questions and see how the response is and use the science behind decision making and rapport and building up um, uh, a line of questions that's going to help your case down the road.
1: Can
0: you give me an example of something that you've learned, you know, something specific you've learned from one of these non-legal books on either cognitive science or decision making or metaphor, whatever it is, that then you've then be able to incorporate into being a better persuader
2: in a courtroom. Well, I love met- metaphors. And Rex Paris got me into using metaphors and uh, he was so nice to share some of the books and the literature and, and just talk to me about metaphors. Um, and without getting into detail, we think metaphorically, we think in pictures, uh, and then it affects our behavior. So every case, we're obsessed with finding what's the metaphor. What's a mountain to climb or a truck. We had a, uh, a truck crash case where it was an older truck driver who had been doing it 35 years, and he wasn't going to change the way he handled uh, his job and drove, and any safety rule and training and federal reg didn't mean a thing to him. So we came up with a metaphor, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Um, so we're always using the science of metaphors and affecting uh, our cases and how we can use those. Disperse some action with the jury. You
0: know, if our listeners want to learn more about metaphor, what's one of the books you've read would be uh, good at that?
2: Sure, sure. There's a guy named Zaltman who's written a couple, one with his son. How do you spell uh, that? Z-A-L-T-M-A-N. Okay. And he's written two. I think one's How Customers Think and one's uh, Metaphoria, I believe. The standard scholarly book uh, uh, is by Lakoff and Johnson, and it that'll start yeah if it's a little I'm bit about l-a-k-o-f-f i believe so and johnson uh it's a bit scholarly but i still recommend it It gives some great examples of metaphors of war and dance and how it affects our behavior it's a great way to start and i know it's a little bit scholarly and thick but read through it and it's not that long of a book and then go to the saltman books and people can always email me there's a bunch of more uh, i'd recommend on metaphors and, and they're fascinating
0: You've, I've heard you, well, I heard you speak yesterday, and one of the things you said is how you use focus groups to help you either find or test
2: metaphors. Tell me about some of that. Sure. Well, Michael uh, uh who we've mentioned from Ohio, and, and Chris Stambaugh, based out of Wisconsin, the three of us really started experimenting this with uh, spurred on by Rex Paris. And essentially what we've done is we've had a focus group where we present a case to participants, and they literally go home for a day or two and we give them some very simple instructions to find images, could be old school cutting a magazine image from a magazine to uh, iStock photo or Google images and bring those back to us a day or two later uh, about images that were meaningful to them about the case. And we give them some really simple instructions like You know, if it's a truck crash case, we don't need a picture of a truck. A little bit deeper than that. And they come back with a number of images. And we have one-on-one interviews with the participants and really delve deep with a series of questions we've developed as to what the image meant with regard to the case. And it could be an image of a person in a prison cell. And you're thinking, well, what? it's a truck case. What does that have to do with... A prison cell well it for this particular person it meant the injuries that the plaintiff had uh, imprisoned him he was like he was uh, unable to leave his inn. you know the injuries were so severe that he was trapped and imprisoned in jail by what this dangerous truck company caused um, and we get beautiful images and sometimes we get images that are really harmful to the case and we have to retweak and yeah. rethink our theory and, and sometimes we want the bad would rather have the bad in a focus group than in,
0: yeah. uh, a real trial but when you get the good you get something that works then how do you then incorporate that okay so we know that you know let's say someone says in prison your train is imprisoning you you know then you test a focus group it works yeah people buy that metaphor then how do you how do you incorporate that into your
2: presentation? Well, we can use it by language. Uh, we can also use it, literally an image, a visual exhibit that uh, will trigger the metaphor we're trying to uh, use in the case, and there's a variety of ways to do it. We can use it with language in uh, a direct examination, opening statement. I'd rather, oftentimes, depending on the case, have a witness trigger that metaphor. It can be even an expert uh, might explain. I know you've done some Uh, complicated truck cases and sometimes the experts get lost in their specific field of expertise and if they can come up with a metaphor and say well no it's like you know a soccer game or it's like something a child would do and that can trigger an immature jury thinking well wait oh I get it now when it can be some complicated issue about an accident reconstruction report and if you can use a simple metaphor, and that's gonna stick with them, certainly much better than the complicated right. engineer or science behind the So let So you have like
0: a brain injury case where they're scared to go in public because they look normal, but they can't handle normal interactions and they don't want to be embarrassed. And So like the injury traps them, imprisons them in their own house, or like trapped in prison because they can't get out without suffering adverse consequences, like being mm-hmm. embarrassed, things not going right, having to meltdown. down. That's right. But you get your neuropsychologist or neurologist someone to say it instead of you, maybe. That's right. That's right. Awesome. You've also published a, a book in the PI field, haven't you?
2: I have. We published a book by Thomson Reuters about litigating major automobile co- uh, collision injury and wrongful death cases. Okay. How how did you end up doing that? Well, let me back up. It was actually originally written by Karen Kohler and Michael Friedman. And they stepped back and they needed someone to update the book. So for a number of years, uh, Tom DeMore and I, Tom's from Oregon, he and I update the book. So it's very fortunate that I was allowed to or asked to, to help out with the book. But we get to read and update things like bus collisions or um, even there's even a focus group chapter which I helped to update. And we put in the latest news and case law and theories behind how to handle auto crash cases and you know a lot of our auto crash cases are auto versus truck um but we get to use a little bit of what we've learned it could be a motion that something comes up that we're like wait there's a new case we can throw in a motion eliminate we might update it in the book and, and it's a real useful guide how to handle cases for other travelers throughout the country
0: how do you find time to do all this
2: I like staying busy. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy it. I really do. I get up early and I enjoy the reading and the writing and, and thinking about our cases and how to do better. And I just enjoy it. It doesn't seem like it's work to me oftentimes.
0: Do you have any kind of time management system you use for yourself to make sure you
2: you know get everything done you need done? That's a good question. I wake up early, so I'm up a few hours before... I, my three boys and my wife are up so it gives me that quiet time to read and think about my day and I try my best to journal in the morning and get things done early because they're there it's gonna happen inevitably for instance if I want to do something and read a, uh, a book or write a chapter for a book uh, or an article if I said you know what I'm gonna schedule for 3 p.m. inevitably we'll get a case on it, uh, a call or a deposition or emergency might come up uh, or a motion might get filed that we have to address. But if I schedule it early, it gets done. Uh, The other thing I've been really trying my best to do, and it's a work in progress, Mike, is to block out time. And I I was never really good at it. I would just go right at it and get things done. And now I'll look at my week on Sunday and I'll schedule out chunks of time. I'm much better at working certain times of day than others. And I might block out, you know, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. and just block it out, and everyone in my office will know not to schedule anything that time. I'm getting some long-term work done, whether it's reviewing depositions or writing or something else. Because if it's in the schedule and it's blocked out, you're less likely to kick the can, so to speak, to use a metaphor.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210 or send an email to podcast at com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show.
0: We've done the same thing. we found the only way to get big results on cases is to dedicate large blocks of uninterrupted, focused which is enough time away from everything else to let the other stuff stop bothering you, stop being in the back of your mind, Uh, sometimes outside of the office even. Uh, But definitely, you know, where everyone knows, no interruptions allowed, you know, no email alerts popping up on your screen, uh, no phone ringing, and you are going to work on this and focus on this because that's where you really dig deep and get those insights that that allow you to, to do great things on cases.
2: That's right, and sometimes we'll even get a conference room at a hotel, even locally. Yeah. Even in Chicago, we'll just block out time, we'll go to a conference room, bring what we need, and especially with technology now, you can bring a huge file back room. At first in our practice, and you have to have the physical file, and now we can work remotely and just get away from the office, get away from the distractions, and sometimes a day at a hotel conference room, you can do a week's worth of work.
0: Absolutely. And sometimes a week in the office, you get no work done because you, you're you talking to people, you you let the little, oh, I gotta check my email. I mean, I, I can spend a day just going through email, responding to texts or answering phone calls and get nothing accomplished. But feel like, well, I've been here nine hours. And sometimes I'm lazy, I don't feel like working, but I'm too embarrassed to just take the day off and I'll go in and like, between being on the internet and checking email and just going through little stuff, I get nothing accomplished. I don't move the ball forward, but I've been there nine hours, and so I feel like I can tell people I'm working. That's right. That's right. And
2: I love that 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 phrase "move the ball forward" because it it, it assumes you're playing offense. When I at the end of the day, when I'm I'm doing it with my family, if I look back at my day and I played defense, if I was reactive all day, it's generally not a great day. Yeah. If I'm proactive and accomplish my goals and playing offense it's usually a productive, good day. And part of that is journaling. There's a, I think, best self journal. And it, you literally in the morning, write in your goals, your three goals for that day. What would make this day a success? You write three things down, uh, and then you're going through your day, my journal's open, I'm like, wait a minute. I, got, I haven't even touched those three things because I've returned some calls, I spent an hour responding to emails on a listserv, and accomplished really nothing to help my clients. That afternoon or that morning but if i look at my journal and get to those goals and focus on the goals and play offense it's a much more productive better day for me and i feel better
0: yeah you know i'm i'm trying and i still slip but i've i've looked hard like i have three main goals right now in my life professionally i mean i have personal life you know i'd like to lose some weight i want to make sure i'm a dad with my kids but professionally you know i want to get an eight-figure verdict i want to write a book and I want to have a law firm that is, I want to run a law firm that allows me to have the time to focus on those other two things. So there's a, some management things I need to do, there's some coaching and strategizing with other lawyers I need to do to make sure that I don't have to jump into crisis mode and, and fix things, that uh, the other lawyers in my office you know, have the training, have the collaboration with me when they need it to make sure that they're doing great things too, and uh, that if I need to come and try a case, I'll be ready for trial. But basically, it means I want to work on the best five cases at my firm, getting re- getting them ready for trial, mm-hmm. and I'm going to dedicate time for writing. And if, if it's something other than one of those two things, are running the firm better, then I shouldn't do it. And it's hard because it's easy to get pulled into other things. But it's uh, being almost selfish about it, saying these are my goals for the day. I'm almost fifty. I don't have that. But, you know, I only have so many days left. I'm not going to die next year or anything. Hopefully, but. You know, when we get to a certain age, we're like, if we want to achieve our goals in life, this is the time to do it. Uh, that's the only way that things do move forward, because if not, you can react to other people's stuff all day long and get
2: nothing done that you need done. So there's a couple of things, and I know your firm well now. Uh, one, it, it pl- takes some planning. A lot of planning. And a structure, uh, and people some buy-in, your colleagues know. And you have great law partners oh, that blessed. can try good cases, and you can trust your partners who I've got to know very well on like cases and seminars and teaching and what a gift you have that you have the ability to focus on these three main goals you have knowing that your clients are taken care of.
0: Well, one thing I've learned is only work with people that I trust so that someone doesn't think you just have to part ways and then trust them and actually trust mm-hmm. them and empower them and... Uh, it's just amazing, you know. I I went on vacation and the first week I'm gone, there's like five million dollars in settlements. There wasn't five million dollars in settlements the week before I left. I mean that's not a normal week for us. I mean, uh so I'm like, oh, man, i want to leave the office more often, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But we had we have the right people and you 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 train them, you we spend firm money on not just in house training, but you know, anybody at my firm that if it's something Uh, educationally that they want to do that I think I'll pay for it because I'll train them I will give them resources but then you also have to
2: trust them to do it so that you can focus on what you need to get done that's right and it's a balance at that because your uh, lawyers are talented lawyers but they have you as a resource to run case ideas by and strategize so it's a balance from them for them to have the freedom to handle cases and not rely on you too much but yet have the resource. And still use you as the resource and um, have the freedom to do it and independence to do it on their own. So it's a a balancing act I bet.
0: Yeah. And part of it's just, you know, I fall back into what I'm comfortable doing. So, like, there's things I know how to write a motion to compel. And sometimes I know how to write another motion. I know how to take a certain kind of deposition. So I'll step up and volunteer to do that because you know i'm lazy and don't feel like diving deep on something and i know i can do it i know i can do it well it'll be moving the ball somewhat forward but frankly there's someone else that could do that deposition either just as well or within five or ten percent what won't make a real difference in the case uh and i would be better off spending an hour with them collaborating planning uh maybe 30 minutes afterwards on recapping Mm -hmm. and then focusing on on an even bigger case while they work on the medium-sized case and uh they get the experience, they get better, uh, and then I get to give the most, you know, the clients that need the
2: most help, the most help. Well, that's great how you've structured the firm. That's fantastic. Yeah.
0: Well, it took 20-something years of trial and error to get there, right. so. Right. And your firm isn't bad either. I've met your lawyers. You've got some good people you work with, too. So. Oh, I'm,
2: I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And you know, my partner, Jay, is just a talented, smart lawyer, and our associate, Dan, is just Dedicated, smart, always learning, and he's he's great. So, if you want to give some advice, let's say uh, it's a
0: lawyer that wants to get to the level where they're getting, they can get, want to get, be able to get a forty-three million dollar verdict or six point two five million dollar settlement. What do you recommend as some you know concrete steps to take to to get started down that journey?
2: Well, first you have to ask for it, right? You have to ask for the money. And a lot of lawyers and Michael Leesman's has talked about it you really have to be comfortable asking for big numbers when the case justifies it. Because we're tentative, we think, oh, it's a lot of money, we all have issues with money, or some of us do, I do. Um, it's You really have to, the more you ask, the more you get, and that's been proven with anchoring and science, and um, in my experience with focus groups and, and trial work, uh, if the client deserves to be compensated at a high level, um, You've got to believe in your case, believe in your client, and ask for it. Uh, and you're going to get it more likely than not, as opposed to tentatively and timidly and really having an issue with asking for full compensation. A lot of lawyers aren't really comfortable asking for it. You almost have to practice it and believe it and be honest with yourself. And uh, that's my first piece of advice. And the second is I learned from you, Michael. You told me a, a long time ago. You know, when you started turning away cases that weren't at the level you wanted to work on, and listen, there's great lawyers doing God's work, representing clients that don't have huge damage cases, and we need lawyers to help. But if you're gonna structure your practice to handle catastrophic and a certain level of case, it takes discipline to turn the smaller cases away. Um, And your experience is is golden. a great example to everybody that when you started turning down smaller cases and focusing and, and helping clients with the more catastrophic injury cases and wrongful death lawsuits, uh, tell us about your experience, Michael. You got better results and more big cases.
0: That's right. Uh, because they, Ronnie uses big. You know, big cases get big, big cases. You do well on something, people talk, and then you get two more, you get three more. Uh, and even the same lawyer wouldn't, you know, now you have to earn it. Now, so if I hadn't tried the hundred smaller cases and proved myself, I would have never had the first big case to get. But when you when you start moving up, when you say no to something, I used to think, oh, if I say no to this lawyer, they're never going to refer me another case. It's the opposite. They, you earn their respect. They're like, wow, he must be a really a big case lawyer. And I found the country. When I take the crap case from someone, well, it, maybe if I take this horrible case, they'll bring me on their big one. No. You're the lawyer that takes crap cases. You must not be that good. I'm not going to give my good case to some lawyer that takes crap cases. He's a crap case lawyer. It's crazy, but that's what works. So, yeah, having the courage to to turn things down has been a huge thing for me.
2: But and, hard for me. Right, but, and we're scared. I mean, it, you know, I think as trial lawyers, as plaintiff's lawyers, I, I think we're we're scared. I'm scared. You know, you can't go downtown Chicago with being inundated with billboards and... Uh, signs on buses and TV and internet it's very competitive to get cases so you, we're scared that one, you know, if a referring lawyer is kind enough and, and thoughtful of you uh, and sends you a case and refers a, a family member or neighbor or client to you, you you're honored it's hard, to, you're scared to say no you're like, well they're never going to think of me again which maybe but most of the time that's not true and the other thing is, we're scared of our websites. We, we market everything. You know, if you look at lawyer websites, for the most part, it'll say we do, you know, truck and aviation and premises and construction and workers' comp and product liability and dog bite and every injury known to man and woman. Um, because we're scared they're going to have that one big case and we're going to. They're going to look at our website. We don't mention we do that type of case, and we're not going to get it. Uh, and I found the contrary. I think people want a lawyer who concentrate and is, quote, unquote, a specialist. We don't say specials in Illinois, but we we concentrate in our truck and auto practice. And you know what? If someone has a medical negligence case or another case that we don't handle, that's okay. That's fine. That's not what we're great at. That's not uh, really the best for the client. We're not the best firm for a client to handle a mass tort case or a toxic tort case. Um, So we promote what we do uh, the truck crash cases and catastrophic injuries and and auto crash cases so uh, it's hard it, it's taken a while for us to get to that point but we can't live in fear we have to do what we think is yeah. uh, the best way to handle our marketing and our cases and get to where uh, we need we want to be at as a as a law firm
0: now one thing that I've talked about is you know you' Done so many focus groups on trucking cases. I think you've seen, what, over a thousand groups or 1, a yeah. thousand jurors? Uh,
2: yeah, we've probably done thousands of uh, participants, jurors, right, um, and hundreds and hundreds of focus groups.
0: So you've seen thousands of people make decisions in trucking cases, and that's what you specialize in. Oh, you can't? Okay, you're in Illinois. <laughs> that's what you concentrate in. That's right. Uh, that's in right. Texas, I can specialize in something. Uh, what are some things you've learned?
2: that well the term that comes up a lot in these focus groups with with uh, commercial vehicles is the term professional driver Uh, and there's a difference people look at the training uh, of professional truck drivers driving 80,000 70,000 pound vehicles on the road that God forbid you're in a crash with them it's it can be deadly as opposed to someone like me who's got a regular driver's license so professional driving comes up a lot. That term comes up a lot, and you have to use that. The other thing that I notice constantly is the issue of vision. When did the when did your client see the truck? Uh, if it's a jackknife trailer, for instance, in, you know up in Chicago, we get, you might have heard we get some snow occasionally. So snow and ice, uh, a truck jackknifes, and your client hits the uh, trailer. When did you see the trailer? Was it night? Was it light time? Was there conspicuity tape? Was there artificial lighting? When did you see the truck? Rear end collision. In a lot of our truck focus groups and truck cases, the issue of vision, because I think people generally, not always, but a lot of drivers of regular cars are scared of these big trucks. so there's an automatic fear and thinking, well, if you see this truck, you stay away. It's dangerous. So you always have to make sure that your client uh, and the vision issue is addressed. You can't just leave that to chance. You know, obviously, if the truck was in, uh, in the dark and the highway stopped and there's no lights and no conspicuity uh, issues and your client rear ends the truck, that's one thing. But if it's daylight and they could see, it's something you have to deal with. Um, and sometimes you have to own it. And sometimes you have to own it. Then sometimes you have to own it. Uh, And the other thing that comes up a lot in focusing with with trucking cases is the forgiveness of a truck driver's conduct in the instant, in the moment. As opposed to a long-term trucking company with dangerous policies, unsafe policies. Hiring unsafe, unqualified drivers, uh, lack of training, and it's a bigger issue, the time frame is longer, timing is key, as opposed to one split second a driver makes. If that's your case, that's a much more challenging road to hoe than a trucking company that knew better and hired this driver with all these violations, who wasn't trained, who maybe even had some collisions uh, at the same job and was kept on, carelessly, negligently uh, retained. Uh, So those are a few things that come up a lot that we really, as trial lawyers, really need to think about. Great.
0: I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I selfishly get to keep talking to you because we're going to go to dinner. (laughs) But uh, uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, If people want to find you or get a hold of you, what's the best
2: way to find you? Well, um, I'm in Chicago. If you Google Ken Levinson in Chicago, they'll get to me. It's Levinson and Stefani uh, Law Firm, uh, Injury Lawyers and ken at levinsonstephanie.com is my email but call and if you have a case you want to discuss i'm always uh, thrilled and honored to strategize the case and help if we can anything you need in chicago from uh helping a client to a great restaurant to a bulls game uh we're here great well thank you ken thank you so much for having me and keep up the great work michael
0: Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the -the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez-Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.